Uh, For the rest of us, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, the last chapter of that uh, book of Scripture. As you do that, I want to give a brief disclaimer uh, to you. Uh, What we're going to be talking about through large portions of the sermon today is uh, one of the hard truths of Scripture. Uh, Sometimes, as a pastor, I'm tempted to tell people what they want to hear when they're going through a difficult time. Uh, And yet, it's been my commitment, I haven't always done this perfectly, but it's been my commitment to, if God is prompting me to give them truth, even if I feel that it's hard, uh, to give that to them, because that's what they really need. As we look at Genesis 50 today, uh, I'm going to start with this disclaimer. There'll be some hard truth in this passage for each one of us. Each one of us uh, have been involved in relational conflict and strife. Sometimes we're the offender. Uh, Actually, most times we're the offender, right? Uh, And sometimes we're the one who's been offended. And so uh, the the relevant text in the center of this chapter today will be something that uh, ministers to each one of us in different ways. I would, at this point in the sermon, uh, in the introduction, I would take a moment to stop and pray and ask God for grace and strength. But can I just tell you, I've done that all week. I've been doing that for weeks because of how uh, important this hard truth is. I trust that you'll see that uh, as I present uh, in accordance and align with what the Scriptures say, that, that you need to submit to that because it's what the Scriptures say. If I present something that does not match what the Scriptures say, then you have my permission, as if you would even need it, uh, not to obey. Obey what the Scriptures are telling you clearly. And so it's my heart that I'll be able to accurately reflect this and that my spirit to you would be one in which I am a sinner like you, pouring my heart out to you from this passage. As we come to the final chapter of Genesis, we come to the end of the narrative that Moses has written. The book starts out with everything good, right? Everything's good in the garden. Uh, Every day more is created, and it's always good. It's good, good, good. But then things twist in the fall of man, and everything comes crashing down. And so what we found over the course of the last several weeks in Genesis is the rest of Genesis then is a story of how God helps humanity through a man by the name of Abraham and through his descendants. And so this is an amazing book. And with that sort of summary in mind, starts out good, fall, everything's bad, but God is working through Abraham to help. How might you think a book like this would end? What sort of powerful ending would Moses put on this so that Uh, we could just be thoroughly impressed. Have you ever been really satisfied with the way a book or a movie has ended before? You know, everyone makes it out alive. There's finally vindication for the main character. Turn off the TV, close the last chapter. Yes, that's the way a book should end. Well, have you ever been really disappointed with the way a book or a movie ends? Two of my least favorite stories I'm familiar with are Romeo and Juliet. Um, that, you know, who, who writes that sort of stuff? And, and then where the red fern grows, I don't know if you've ever seen that before, but the dog dies, you know, and there's no, 
good human reason why a book should end that way. Many people can't really appreciate a tragic ending where everyone of significance dies or most people die unnecessarily. Well, look at the last verse of Genesis. Uh, If you have uh, the handout, I highlighted it yellow and put it right in there so you could see it. If you don't, look with me at verse 26. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And not even the words, the end. He's in a coffin in Egypt. This is like a fireworks display I went to once that had a malfunction at the end. And there was no grand finale. It just stopped. And everyone was like, what was that all about? When we come to the end of Genesis, in Genesis 50, the main themes we discover are death, where death is mentioned four times, embalming. You probably didn't know so much was in the Bible about embalming. You're going to learn more about that today, mentioned four times in this chapter. Burial, mentioned eight times, and the word mourning or to weep, mentioned 11 times. Not only does Joseph die in this chapter, but there are bookends this chapter in that his father dies in the first part of the chapter. Seems like everyone is dying and being embalmed in Genesis 50. One could be disappointed with such a tragic ending. Yet there are explanations for the nature of the ending of Genesis. And I I just would point out two of these to you. These two, by way of introduction, help me understand why it just ends like this. The first thing I'd point out is that Moses did not finish his story with Genesis. This book, Genesis, is just the beginning of the Pentateuch, a five-volume book called The Law of Moses. The next book, for instance, tells how God redeems his people through the Exodus to take them out of Egypt and slavery there up to the brink of the Promised Land. We find out through the book and just after that even, we we even learn that Joseph's bones somehow make it back to the Promised Land as well. So the whole Pentateuch tells a more successful story. Genesis doesn't end it. It's not the true end. But second, I would also point this out, that the dismal chapter, Genesis 50, has a bright spot in the middle. See, there are three sections in Genesis chapter 50. The first and the third sections have those themes I've already articulated, death, embalming, burial, weeping. But in the center, verses 15 through 21, there is another section, a bright spot, that mentions very few of those themes. And so we we learn that there is another important emphasis that Moses ends with, and that emphasis is the good providence of our creator God. So the story is not as sad as it appears on the surface, and it makes contribution to areas as important as theology or our view of God. And so with that in mind, I want to look at this with you. It has three sections that go from verses 1 through 14, 15 through 21, and verses 22 through 26. It starts with Jacob's embalming and burial. That's point one, verse 1 through 14. So let's read those verses together. Verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. 
And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. (coughs) So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all of the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there... They went up, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. While they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Misraim, which means the mourning of Egypt. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him in the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And he had, after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his fathers. A memorable Father's Day sermon. The father is mentioned several times in the text. Several weeks ago, remember I ran up a white flag about I couldn't get the whole way through a text, and the reason I was really wrestling with God, not like Jacob, but metaphorically, wrestling with God was I knew that this would set us up for Genesis 50 on Father's Day. Okay, but if you hang on, I'm quite convinced this will be very inspiring to fathers who are here to, today. Well, the main themes of this chapter are present in the first section. As Moses tells the story of Jacob's burial, he describes death, embalming, and mourning. In this section, Joseph bears the weight of making final preparations for his father's burial. And he demonstrates great care and attention to make the things as his father had asked. In this way, in a moment of application, I would say that Joseph is a great example to all of us who should feel the responsibility to care for our relatives when they die. As a pastor, one of my greatest privileges is to be there and to help uh, the family, in most cases, help the family with final plans and preparations for someone who's passed away. But it's always sad to me when a brother or sister passes away without any family to take care of things. In such cases, though, I can report to you that in every instance in which that has happened at Colonial, since I've been here for six years, a brother or sister has stepped up and come alongside of them to help care for them and care for the final preparations in the end. 
Although in our culture, sometimes the family is the last to arrange these things, Joseph would have none of that because this is his father. And so although it's very inconvenient to him, he has some messengers go to Pharaoh and make the request, and he's committed to taking his father the whole way back up to Canaan and to burial and to bury him in the right place. So this narrative begins then with Jacob being embalmed according to the Egyptian custom. Okay, now there's a lot you could, you could learn about embalming. That's not the point of this story. There's a lot about Egyptian embalming that you could, believe me, I read it this week. Okay, read it on your own sometime. They were quite experts at it. And it was partially due to the fact that they wanted to cheat the decaying powers of death. Perhaps works for a little time, but not, not for long, right? But then after that, Joseph explains to Pharaoh's household that he had taken an oath to bury his father in Canaan. And once Pharaoh hears about that, he gladly grants permission and he arranges a very impressive funeral procession, including all of the top officials of the Egyptian people and including a military contingent of chariots and horsemen that will go with him. No one's going to mess with this party with the chariots and the horsemen. Joseph leaves behind the children and their possessions in the care of servants. That's the only thing he leaves back, and that, I think, signals to Pharaoh that he will indeed return as he promises at the end of verse 5. I'm going to go up and bury my father, and then I will return. With Jacob's final days completed here, verses 1 through 14, Moses closes Genesis with two moments in the final years of Joseph. And that's what's left. There's first an interaction, a very interesting interaction he has with his brothers in verses 15 through 21. And then there's Joseph's own death and embalming in verses 22 through 26. And so I want to move to point number two. And if you have a handout, you flip it over to the back, second half. You say, man, we're really making it through the material today. Well, I'm going to slow down a little. The next section we learn about the kindness of Joseph, verses 15 through 21. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of your servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. This is the bright spot in the center of a chapter about death and burial. This story helps us all because of the relational tensions 
that we feel from time to time in our own personal relationships. As we look at this, I want to draw out three lessons, I think, from the text about forgiveness that I intend to be helpful and instructional, instructional for each one of us on this Father's Day. First, in this passage, I think we see, and there's a blank here in your notes, so you're going to have to like fill it in. We see that a guilty conscience has devastating effects. A guilty conscience has devastating effects. When one reads this passage, he sees that the brothers are haunted by the evil. I noted three times in this text, over and over again, the evil, the evil, the evil. It's like the heart that just keeps pumping underneath the floorboards of the house. The evil, the evil, the evil, it's haunting them. John Goldengate says it this way, what an almost incurable wound sin and an evil conscience are. Now what we have to know about this passage to properly understand it is that 17 years before, they did have an exchange something like this. In fact, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 45. And I want to read to you what Joseph said to them that the moment he reveals he knew that they had thrown him in the pit and that he was still alive. Okay, so we're going to look at Genesis 45, 17 years before this moment, the end of Genesis. He said this, look at Genesis 45, verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Look at verse 10. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. 17 years before, now go back to Genesis 50. 17 years before he had said this, yet the brothers now fear that the only reason Joseph has been tolerating him, them, the only reason he's been gracious is to honor their father who's just passed off the scene. And so perhaps they panic because they never fully repented or never fully owned their sins before him the way they should have. don't know for sure, but they panic. And that should not surprise us because I believe their guilty consciences had been crushing their souls for 17 years. Their guilty consciences had been creating doubts for 17 years about the closeness of their relationship to their brother. And men and women, I want you to pay close attention I want you to pay close attention to this part of the text for the sake of your own soul. Not for the sake of mastery of Scripture, for the sake of your own soul. Is there someone that you've offended that you need to seek out forgiveness from? Don't try to push that away. Don't thrust it down. Don't smash it down. Instead, submit and humbly go and ask for their forgiveness perhaps they'll forgive you. And if they know Jesus Christ is their Savior and understand the full significance of everything they've been forgiven of, I think hopefully they'll be willing to do that. 
And so first we see that a guilty conscience has devastating effects. These brothers just keep thinking evil, evil, evil. The evil that we did. But then secondly, I would add to this another lesson on forgiveness. I think that this comes from this text, and that is that showing grace encourages others to get right. There's a blank at the end. It's get right. Okay. Showing grace encourages others to get right. This text and the text from Genesis 45 to 50, I think, make it quite clear that Joseph consistently demonstrated goodness and grace to the brothers all the years that they were in Goshen. He did not hold the brothers at arm's distance because they didn't demonstrate repentance or fully demonstrate the marks of genuine contrition toward Joseph. There's no hint in the Bible that he continued to hold things against these brothers or punished them throughout all this time. If the brothers feel that he is going to turn on them and punish them, it's not because he's given them any reason to think that he's vindictive. He had plenty of opportunities as the second most powerful ruler in Egypt. He's been very gracious to them. Ultimately, however, in this text, I I do find that it seems that these brothers are far closer to actual repentance in this scene than before. Now, we don't actually know what they were thinking in Genesis 45. We don't know what they were saying back then. The text doesn't actually mention that. In this scene, however, we see a few very encouraging signs. We see that they own their own sin, and they ask for forgiveness through the message that's delivered to Joseph. I want to show this to you, just so you see this. Uh, First, they own their own sin, verse 17. Okay, so we look at that verse again. Say to Joseph in this message, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Do you see how thoroughly they describe the heinousness of their sin. They use three different words, three different Hebrew words, to make it clear that they understand the nature of their sin. They use the word transgression here once in this passage, once in the very next verse too. Sin and evil. This is the only time in all the Bible that the three words are used together to describe a sin. It's very thorough. They clearly own their own crime against Joseph. And then they ask for forgiveness. We don't know if the brothers had asked for forgiveness 17 years before. The Bible doesn't tell us. But here they clearly do so. Although they're not even personally present at the beginning. Do you see that? The message comes to them. A messenger brings this message But the message is to carry the full weight of their request. So the messenger says that it was Jacob's desire for Joseph to forgive them. Now, we have no idea whether this was true or not. I I tend to think that this is completely fabricated. I mean, why would Jacob just not tell Joseph that? He had opportunities, even on his deathbed, to tell him that. Maybe they fabricated this. Well... Let's tell him Jacob said it would be a good idea for you to forgive us. Regardless to this, the messenger asked that it's the brother's request for them to be forgiven too. They want Joseph to release them entirely 
from the offense, from the debt of the evil that they've committed against him. To this, we do find in verse 18 that the brothers finally appear and they add their own submission as servants or slaves of Joseph. Okay, now this is where we as modern Americans in the Western world really tend to obsess about things and parse things out here. I read so many different commentaries on this, I finally just said, you know what, I'm just done with it. We sometimes obsess about the exact nature of true forgiveness. We make demands today of what is said, how it's said, for what purposes it's said, when it's said, and we parse this brief account too. I mean, did they actually get right? Does it count if a messenger is the one who asks for forgiveness? Did they ever ask for forgiveness themselves? They said, well, like, be your servants. They never even said some of the things that we'd expect them to do. And, you know, Joseph could have been nitpicky here too. They're coming to me through messengers. They did not even personally say it. But Joseph will have none of that negativism and cynicism. Instead, he shows grace and more grace and more grace to these brothers. And God powerfully uses that to bring the brothers to the place where they want to get right. Entirely. Joseph's grace toward them does not mean that he condones their sinful behavior, what they've done against him. It's not like he's saying that's a big deal. That wasn't a big deal. But but God does use his grace toward them to bring the brothers to repentance. His grace and kindness were like heaping burning coals upon their heads throughout the years. And brothers and sisters, God can use grace and kindness to melt someone's heart of stone. And so I encourage you to try this. Try this instead of making sure they know every time that you see them that you're ticked off at them and can't stand the sight of them and can't wait until the day that they grovel before you, asking, pleading for your forgiveness. Instead, be gracious and kind to them as long as you're safe and see what God will do over time to melt their heart of stone. I'm concerned that some of us don't actually approach forgiveness with such grace as Joseph here. Some of us demand that all confessions follow our script for what confession should look like and how we've imagined things, how we've dreamed things to be. Unfortunately, however, it might not be that we would ever hear an acceptable confession if the standard is our own script. But, If we would follow Jesus' example, it might mean that we would offer forgiveness even if the person doesn't say the seven important words mandated by our contemporary culture. You know what they are. I am sorry. Uh, I always forget the next part, right? Uh, Would you forgive me. Sorry. God, totally. There are seven words I somehow got there. I am sorry. Would you please forgive me? So, family, I do know how to say that, okay? 
men and women, sometimes we need to show wisdom and we need to discern that true repentance and godly sorrow doesn't always fit my script. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus was enjoying a meal. Do you remember this? He was enjoying a meal, and a woman burst in, and according to the biblical text, I don't even think she says one word to him. Does he say one word to him? But she was absolutely devastated by her sin, and she kept washing his feet with her tears. And so Jesus looks at her, and he says, your sins are forgiven. She didn't use the exact words, but grace and forgiveness came through Jesus Christ who discerned that she was truly repentant. I want you to consider any conflicts that you have right now. Are you showing true grace in this situation? You say, I'm convinced that I am. I say, that sounds dangerous because of the deceitfulness of sin. I would encourage you to ask anyone else who might be in the know, not for you to gossip about it, but to ask anyone else who might know what's going on, ask them what they really think about whether you're showing grace and forgiveness. And don't just ask your best friend that always gives you the answers you want. If you ask others, perhaps there wouldn't be such confidence in your own magnanimity, benevolence. This is so important, men and women. Later on in Scripture, we learn that one of Satan's greatest strategies is for believers to experience excessive sorrow and punishment by other believers who withhold forgiveness from them. So where do you see that? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 just for a moment. Keep your finger here because it won't take long. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And what Paul does here... I, I, I mean, what Paul's willing to do here with someone I think who's offended him just blows contemporary understanding of forgiveness out of the water. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such an one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul was concerned that this offending brother, who had, I think, offended him, he was concerned that the punishment inflicted by these people, by the Corinthian church, would cause this brother to be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow that would crush him. Verse 8, so I beg you, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Like work that into the modern understanding of forgiveness. He actually offended me. He actually, sin was against me directly, but if you forgive him, then I forgive him. Indeed, what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his devices or designs. Here. This is 
often where Satan gets its deepest foothold in our lives. An unforgiving and a bitter spirit is a cancer to our soul. And it can cause excessive damage in the life of another brother or sister. I think as well of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. Listen to these words. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Don't play around with an unforgiving spirit and the bitterness that often it's, it's twin. So let's go back to our text, and we'll finish out. So the brothers were concerned that Joseph would pay them back for their evil. But Joseph settled this long before, at least 17 years before. And as we continue to read in this text in Genesis 50, we learned that although they intended it for evil... Joseph knows that God intended it for good. That's the brother's act of selling him into slavery. And so that leads us to our final lesson. Uh, There are three lessons I wanted you to learn from forgiveness, and this third one's uh, perhaps the most important. All of them, I think, are important, but third, we, we learn this. We learn that affirming God's providence and goodness frees us from bitterness and its terrible consequences in our lives. Affirming God's providence and goodness frees us from bitterness and its terrible consequences. Throughout the challenges of many unfair experiences in Joseph's life, he came to know that God is always in control of the events of life. And I cannot stress this to you enough. In the pit, (laughs) when he's sold into slavery, when he's falsely accused by Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, when he's imprisoned, he has learned that God is always in control of the events of his life. You see, Joseph built his entire worldview on the foundational bedrock that God controls the events of our lives. Listen to what he says in this text. God meant it for good. And later he says, God brought it about. Who brought it about? God brought it about so that many people should be kept alive. God controls the events of our lives. And in Joseph's theology, or his understanding of theology, there was no place for personal revenge because of that. He says, am I in the place of God? His brothers. Since God is sovereign over the circumstances and events in his life, how could Joseph issue a personal judgment or vindication on someone else? And so I say this to you men and women, a, a high view of God and his good providence and sovereignty over our lives frees us. Do you understand that? Do you live in light of that freedom? It frees us from bitterness. Right? Can I hear an amen? Amen. (laughs) 
a proper view of God and his goodness and his providence and sovereignty of our lives frees us from demonstrating bitterness toward other people. And not only does it do that, it allows us to begin to recover even if others never seek restoration. You know, we live in a sinful world where there will be people who significantly offend us and they, will, and they never come to us. That could happen. But even if they don't, a proper view of God's goodness and sovereignty and providence allows you to begin to recover because you know this is God's doing. Brothers and sisters, confidence in God's sovereignty makes forgiveness and recovery possible. There is nothing that comes to you that does not pass through your Father's hands. Do you recognize that? By the way, we can also forgive other people because of the cross of Jesus Christ. I mentioned it earlier. The forgiveness that we experienced at the cross can enable us to forgive anyone. We know my sin nailed Jesus to the cross just as much as their sin did. And so granting forgiveness is an amazing opportunity to show that we believe in the power of the cross to bring full forgiveness and reconciliation. To show that we believe it is sufficient for our forgiveness and is a pattern for how we forgive others. The next time you think that you cannot possibly bring yourself to forgive someone, remember the one who was suspended between heaven and earth on a cross bearing the wrath of God for you, treated unjustly and unfairly so that you could be forgiven. And may God give you the grace and strength to follow that pattern in your own life. Having made these observations, we need to at least read through the last verses of Genesis. I've gone long. But we see point three, the death and embalming of Joseph, verse 22. Now Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you will carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph dies at a good old age. He senses he's about to die and despite his failing, health, he gives final testimony to his strong faith. He knows that he will not get into the promised land, uh, the land promised to his fathers, but he declares twice that God will do it. God's going to do it anyway. He knows that God's plan is just not limited to his own personal existence on planet Earth. And so he graciously submits to the idea that God will fulfill these promises through others in his extended family. His only request is that they would take his bones up to Egypt, which takes about four centuries to accomplish. Set in the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 32, it says, 
As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried at Shechem for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance to descendants of Joseph. Here Joseph narrates a story, or I'm sorry, Genesis narrates a story of the destruction of sin and death. Yet through the book is this thread of redemption and blessing that's coming from the hands of a good God. And Joseph gives one final testimony to his confidence that this is going to happen for his people. On this Father's Day, may may the God-given attributes of Joseph inspire our fathers to show confidence, show confidence in the providence of God. You know, we're... we're, um, We're approaching a few of our own milestones as a family. I spent a little time thinking here recently about the legacy of a father. This is a Father's Day legacy that would be good for each one of our children to pass on to our children and our children's children. That is, that no matter what happens to me, no matter what sort of offenses or things would come my way, I believe in the providence of God. Fathers, would you, by God's grace, ask that he would compel you to faithfully demonstrate to your children that you believe that God is sovereign over all. And he's working out things. Even if someone means evil, God means it for the good. And would you this Father, uh, Father's Day also ask for this legacy, that God would enable you to believe in the promises of God. Ultimate promise that one day we will see him face to face. Perhaps even in the face of death, like Joseph, we will say, I believe that. I believe that. Would you be a father who would demonstrate unflinching confidence in the promise of God? To do that, of course, we need God's Spirit to do a work in our lives. Let's go to him in prayer and ask him to work in our lives. <laughs> Father, I thank you for the text of Scripture. It is always relevant and helpful. There's so much for us to learn. And Lord, I have humbly asked over and over this week that you would eliminate anything from Brent Belford that I work into this text that you would allow that to just fall to nothing. But that you would actually use the words of your scripture to encourage brothers and sisters here. Lord, as I think of our congregation, I know that there are many of us who are suffering or have suffered under relational challenges and issues. And so, Lord, I pray that this text would encourage, would convict where necessary. And ultimately, Lord, I guess I'm most concerned that we would not hesitate to believe that the events in our lives all pass through your hands. 
that you are in control of the events of our lives, and you're working them out for the good. I think of Romans 8. God works all things together for the good to, let, to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Lord, help us to believe these things about your providence. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.